127 pages of a manuscript remain, typewritten in blue ink interspersed with images cut out from various sources. A picture of a Wayang shadow puppet from Upper Java, for example. A picture of a pair of human eyes. A diagram illustrating the principles of the stereoscope. Strobic circles. Portraits of René Descartes and Roger Bacon. Magic lanterns. Parisian phantasmagoria shows. A kaleidotrope, Pepper's ghost. An oxyhydrogen kaleidoscope and many esoteric others. This was part of the magnus opus of Wilfred Ernest Lytton Day, who had traced obsessively the story of film back 25,000 years. He had cut out a picture of a prehistoric painting of a wild boar trotting from the cave of Altamira, Spain, and stuck it into his pages. The animal's body rested on eight legs. It has often caused the writer to wonder, he wrote, if the artist that drew this picture intended to show the animal as if in motion, as, by the use of a mask, moved backwards and forwards, one set of legs could be exposed and the other covered, and in this manner the boar could have been shown, apparently in the act of trotting. Will Day had learnt how to use a magic lantern projector by the age of ten. He became an elocutionist, performing in halls around London, where he experienced some of Britain's first films, shown at the Empire and Alhambra music halls in the mid-1890s, and soon afterwards he obtained his own film projector, thus beginning a lifetime's obsession with motion pictures, an obsession which saw him start his own picture theatre, try his hand at script writing, become a film equipment dealer, produce a comedy film, whitewashing the ceiling and make propaganda lantern slides during the First World War. Day spent years amassing an astonishing collection of early film equipment, and he began writing a comprehensive history of the cinema. Day's book, 25,000 Years to Trap a Shadow, finished sometime in the early 1930s, huge in scale and ambition, failed to find a publisher and his vast collection of film paraphernalia and camera equipment built up over decades of obsessive collecting was sold off. Much of it now resides in the Cinémathèque Française. Will Day, like Louis Le Prince, resides on the edgelands of history. This is our territory now. Our place is amongst the faded reputations and broken dreams of forgotten genius. It's where the most interesting stories are still to be found. Shadow Traps, Episode 2 If a man called Will Day calls, be careful. If a man called Will Day calls, be careful, wrote Ernest Kilburn Scott to the director of Leeds City Museum in 1930. He is a man who has been boosting Freeze Green. If he handles anything, just watch. That film will be of special interest because he has been saying we couldn't produce one. As a matter of fact, he cannot produce any machine by FG. He has two pieces of film and gives the date as 1889, but he is such a showman that anything he... Here the quotation ends. 
only because it runs onto a new page now lost. The surviving excerpt, however, still tells us much. For example, that Le Prince's reputation was vulnerable in the early 20th century to the tribalism of historians. A range of motives often influenced the early chroniclers of film, from the corrupting patronage of an actual inventor to the dispiriting pull of nationalism. Le Prince himself was never the focus of a patriotic campaign, falling as he did between the three stools of France, Britain and the United States. Just as Ernest Kilburn Scott had become one of the great champions of Le Prince, Will Day had been one of the first great champions of the British inventor William Freeze Green as the originator of film. It's generally accepted that Day was as influential in this as he was misguided, and that his uncritical championing of Freeze Green led to some distortions in the story of early film in Britain. Distortions which sometimes involved attempts to undermine the work of other competitors. For example, on the 16th of February 1926, they had given a talk to the Royal Photographic Society of Great Britain in which he had told the audience that Le Prince's Leeds Bridge scene had been shot using a camera furnished with a battery of lenses. Leeds Bridge scene was not shot on a camera with a battery of lenses. It was quite famously, demonstrably shot with a single lens camera. Day's error may have been disingenuous. The avoidance of giving credit to the single lens camera was significant as a capture of motion from the same point of view and thus the avoidance of a jumping image would have been seen as part of the criteria for a legitimate claim to the invention of film. Scott had a fascinating and somewhat cynical perspective on the reasons behind Day's particular championing of Freeze Green and his obstinate belittling of Le Prince. The exuberance of Will Day for Freeze Green's work, wrote Scott, was partly due, perhaps, to his anxiety to sell his collection for pounds. Well, he is a proper salesman. I have no idea whether this is true or not, but it makes an interesting theory. Day did, in fact, possess many artefacts by Freeze Green and none by Le Prince, and was looking to sell his collection on. And his collection would be worth a lot more if it contained the world's first cameras and films. Whether Scott's theory was correct or not, it's still an important reminder that history is influenced by many things, some noble, some grubby, some just very, very human. And in the interest of balance, it should also be pointed out that Ernest Kilburn Scott would produce his own distortions in favour of Le Prince. And here lies our great issue. Who do we trust? The stories of all the early film pioneers have been vulnerable to all kinds of misrepresentations and Le Prince was no exception. And actually Le Prince had an extra problem. His disappearance invited an element of sensationalism to the telling of his tale. And I'll give you an idea of how this sometimes worked. Last week I described briefly Le Prince's US patent for a multi-lens motion picture camera and all the problems he had getting it passed by the patent office. This incredible machine had 16 lenses but could, in theory, have any number, 2, 8, 32. It could even claim the patent application shoot from the same point of view, which many people have taken to mean that it could also operate using a single lens. The same point of view claim was ultimately rejected by the patent office. 
Now, Le Prince later shot several films using a camera with a single lens, and so many people feel that the US Patent Office denied Le Prince legal protection for the camera on which his reputation would rest. I'm only interested in one aspect of this today, and it's this. The refusal of the same point of view claim has been seen as evidenced by many people that the US Patent Office was corrupt and that a rival inventor used their influence to suppress a vital part of Le Prince's patent. This theory has gained traction because in a biography of Le Prince, the seminal The Missing Reel by Christopher Rawlins, who incidentally has probably done more than anyone alive to bring Le Prince's story to the world, in The Missing Reel it, it was revealed that the Patent Office's documents show that the same point of view claim was crossed out by hand, and a note written alongside it, arrays per queue. And Rawlins then asks the question, who was behind this? And the way that this is stated in the book, I'm sure, has led many people to try and figure out who the mysterious Mr Q could have been. The answer to the puzzle is crushingly mundane. You see, Le Prince submitted a patent application containing a detailed description of his designs. The Patent Office, checking it and rejecting parts of it, had to start annotating this detailed patent description, going back to it over the weeks and months, taking bits out, as per Le Prince's instructions, rewording things, adding handwritten notes each time, until the document became riddled with crossings out and comments. To help organise things, every amendment submitted by Le Prince was given a letter as a reference, A, B, C, D, etc., and when the patent examiner inserted that amendment into the original patent description by hand, he gave that annotation the same letter. That way he could refer every change he made back to its source, i.e. back to the original instruction by Le Prince or his lawyers. So, in the original patent description, in what was at one point claim one, where it says that the camera will be able to photograph something at, quote, regular intervals from the same point of view, we see it crossed out and a note saying erase per queue. We now only need to look through the rest of the patent documents to find another letter queue and we find it next to a submission from the Prince's lawyers which instructs the patent office to erase claim one. So giving each amendment a letter was simply a way of organising the scrawl of notes that covered the original patent. Now, I was, perversely, very excited to have found this very boring explanation to what had been an enigmatic puzzle. Basically, because of the satisfaction of working something out and feeling the pieces click together for the first time. But also because something else about it intrigued me. In The Missing Reel, Rawlins writes, What caught my attention was that someone had drawn a line diagonally through the claim. In the margin, a hurried hand had written, Arrays per Q, June 15th, 1887. And then, Rawlins poses a single word question. Who, he writes. Now, this question taken literally seems to mean, who wrote this note? But I put it to you that we are misdirected down along a different route. We end up thinking that the hurriedly written note is saying, erase this claim on the instructions of a Mr Q. And so the question who 
is actually encouraging us to think who the mysterious Q could be. Now, I understand if you think that that's a stretch, but if you do, let me give you two pieces of circumstantial evidence that I hope will back up my theory. This is the first. It is very clear from the beginning of the patent documents that the patent examiner on this case was a William Burke, and as the handwriting seems to belong to the same person, it seems quite clear that it was William Burke who wrote the note. That's who. It is also clear that Rawlins would have known this. If you read all the documents, it's just very obvious. And Rawlins gives a pretty lucid, detailed description of the whole patent application process, and so it's reasonable to assume that he read the document carefully. And so the question who should have been redundant. Rawlins could have told us who if he'd wanted us to know, but I don't think he did, and I think that's because he wanted us to think beyond William Burke and to imagine a dark figure in the background influencing the whole process. The wording in this section of The Missing Reel fascinates me, and forgive my pedantry here, but I think it manipulates our focus. If Rawlins had written, Who wrote this note?, our thoughts would have been directed to the person who physically wrote the note. But by simply putting the single word, who, I think that the reader is carried away by their imagination slightly and is tempted to read this as, who was it that was ultimately responsible? Who got Burke to cross out the claim? The second piece of evidence is this. Rawlins says that erase per Q was written in a hurried hand. And I think that the word hurried provokes our suspicions here. Why was it hurried? It must have been an illicit, furtive act or something. The adjective hurried is meant to make you feel something. But I dispute the idea that Urey's Pequeux was written in a hurried hand. Looking through the documents, it seems no more or less hurried than all the other notes written throughout. And actually, it's easier to read than some of the other annotations, and so I challenge the notion that this was written with any particular haste or guilt, or that it was in any way untoward. And if you put all this together, you have a note, erased per Q, that when taken out of context does sound a little suspicious, and a note that is said to be written in a hurried hand, and if you combine all that with the question, who that is asked by an author who already knows the answer but chooses not to tell us, then with all that in mind, I think it's reasonable to suggest that when Rawlins described the note in his book, he knowingly sent his readers in the wrong direction. There were no lies. There was no claim that Q was a person. It was, in fact, brilliantly done. Through clever phrasing, economy of language and a contentious claim about the hurried nature of the handwriting, we are left with a vague inference of wrongdoing at the US Patent Office. And it was fascinating for me to see how, with just a few little tricks, the everyday annotations of an examiner can somehow be transmuted into a clue that a mysterious villain going by a single initial has been infiltrating the Patent Office and thwarting the prince. So, we have an example of the kind of thing that we need to look out for. And... Well, in for a penny, in for a pound. So while we're on the subject of exaggerations and red herrings, why don't we just kill off one of the most enduring myths about the entire Le Prince story?
Almost everyone who's aware of Le Prince is also aware of the claim that he disappeared from a moving train along with his luggage. This is not a recent theory. We can see how it got hold of people's imaginations in this letter written by Charles B. Howdill, Vice President of the Yorkshire Photographic Union, to Ernest Kilburn Scott on the 29th of May 1930. Some years ago, I left Paris one night, called at Dijon, and trained about nine, dead tired, alone, wakened up in the dark, half-dazed. The station was Avignon. I tumbled out with my luggage and spent an hour or two photographing after daybreak, then proceeded to Marseille and across to Corsica. The point is, I was travelling alone the whole time in the railway carriage. On my return, I asked my folk what they would have done if I had disappeared. I was worth robbing. I considered that it would have been an easy job. I was absolutely dead to the world during the night journey. In my case, I was not worth powder and shot. Le Prince was. The theory continues to be perhaps the defining anecdote of the legend of Le Prince. Here's a little something from a current website that seems pretty typical of what's online. When the train arrived, Le Prince was nowhere to be found. The windows in his cabin were locked and no one heard a thing. And, get this, his luggage was missing as well. The entire train was searched, with neither hide nor hair of the luggage or the man found. There is a possible explanation for the disappearing en route to Paris theory, the disappearing from a moving train with all his luggage theory, and again, it's a very, very simple one. Because from what we've been told in memoirs, etc., well, first of all, the prince is supposed to have missed the morning train to Paris and caught the afternoon train at around 2.40. And that's probably all we need to know, isn't it? Because it means that the Wilsons, the couple who were waiting for him in Paris, were essentially waiting for the wrong train. And they, of course, left. Which means that Le Prince could easily have got off at Paris late in the afternoon or evening with his luggage completely unnoticed. Nothing unusual about that. Still, over the years, logic has been twisted to accommodate the most outlandish of theories. And the distortions continue, whether they be deliberate or accidental, political, cynical or well-intentioned, they accrue, and I myself have contributed to them. When I worked on a documentary on Le Prince, I was filmed in Park Square, where the Le Princes had lived for several years. During the interview, I said that Le Prince patented techniques for firing photographs onto ceramics and colouring them. They didn't patent them. They did develop and teach them and they created impressive and well-regarded pieces of work with their innovative techniques, but no patents as far as we know. And as a director asked for take after take, I started casting around for more things to say. For example, I said that you'd expect Le Prince to have been older than he was because of everything that he'd been through and done by the mid-1870s. Why? People do lead eventful lives and go through a lot by their 30s. So what was I talking about? During the editing of the film, I emailed the production saying that I was talking nonsense in the middle of the scene. The nonsense was kept in and my ineptitude was immortalised. These are just some of the ways and means in which facts become overgrown with inaccuracies. 
and we will do well to remember this because we will need all our critical faculties about us to understand this half-told, half-imagined story. Especially when the very first thing that Lizzie Leprince tells us about her husband is wrong. Augustin Le Prince, the inventor of moving pictures, was born at Metz, August 28, 1842, wrote his wife Lizzie. She was one year out, as was Le Prince's first biographer, Ernest Kilburn Scott, which meant that for a time, the story of Le Prince began with an error, ended with a disappearance, and contained much else in between that, born from grief, anger, disappointment and despair, fell a little way short of the whole truth. Not that it mattered greatly, as no account of his life ever managed to reach a wide enough audience to convince the public that it was Le Prince and not Edison or the Lumiere brothers who had first captured continuous motion and released it back onto a screen. According to his birth certificate, Louis-Aimé-Augustin Le Prince was born at five o'clock in the morning on August the 28th, 1841. He was born in the family home, 13 Rue Saint-George in the French town of Metz, to Elizabeth Marie-Antoinette Boulibert, 25-year-old daughter of Montpellier bourgeoisie, and Louis-Abraham Ambrose Le Prince, 42 years old and at the time an officer in the 7th Artillery Regiment, which was stationed at the local fortress. With Louis Senior in barracks, the rest of the Le Princes, Elizabeth, the young Louis and his elder brother Albert, lived in the house at Rue Saint-George. They were there from 1840 to 43, a well-to-do military family able to employ at various times a servant, a maid and a cook. The peripatetic nature of military careers, however, saw the family move repeatedly. In 1844, the Le Princes moved from Metz in the east across to the city of Rennes in the northwestern region of Brittany. Then to La Ferre in Picardy in 49, down to Vincent in the eastern suburbs of Paris in 50, down again to Toulouse, sitting on the banks of the River Garonne in the southwest of France in 53, and back to Vincent in 55, on top of which were fondly remembered holidays to the Boulibet vineyards in the Mediterranean towns of Sète and Montpellier. In her unfinished, unpublished memoirs, Lizzie would later write that her husband's childhood had the colour and movement that belongs to a somewhat nomadic life of an army officer's family. Moving from post to post at short notice is often more picturesque than comfortable, but children love change and see things from their own standpoint rather than their mother's. Perhaps meeting many people in varying scenes tills a mind for new thought. A single picture of the Le Prince family, a daguerreotype said to have been taken by Daguerre himself, survives. Its survival is a story in itself. Through the 1840s and 50s, the picture would have been carried by the family from Garrison Town to Garrison Town in France, and then with the young Louis Le Prince from France to England, and with his young family over to America. After Le Prince's disappearance, 
En route to Panama in 1910, the picture was lost when it went down with a steamship Georgia, where it lay in a trunk in the vessel's hold for a week. When divers rescued it from the wreckage, it was wrapped up in the rest of the trunk's contents in a frozen bilgewater-soaked ball that had to be unpeeled. It survived fire when the family home in Pointer Woods, New York, burnt down. It remained long after Le Prince had gone. The portrait has the family posed, formal and unsmiling, as all portraits had to be in the mid-19th century, shutter speeds being too slow to capture movement and cameras remembering spontaneity and restlessness as blurs. In the picture, the father... Louis Abraham Ambrose Le Prince is at the back of the group in military uniform. He was, by all accounts, somewhat of a martinet, but missed no detail for the well-being of his men and in times of emergency was looked up to and consulted by those in chief command. One particular story was told about him, that he had received his cross of the Legion of Honour for impersonating the Emperor Napoleon during a riot in Paris. When it was learnt that an attack had been planned on the imperial cortege, it was said to have been Le Prince Senior who had volunteered to wear the Emperor's hat and cloak and had rode past in his stead. The real reason may have been more mundane and may have involved Le Prince Senior lobbying for the award over a period of time and eventually receiving it for continued and steadfast service. However, later, in 1851... Le Prince's regiment was involved in countering an insurrection at Vincennes and if such an outlandish episode did occur, well, it wouldn't be the last time that an apparently far-fetched adventure involving a Le Prince and a riot turned out to be true. But more of that another day. In the daguerreotype, Elizabeth Marie-Antoinette Boulibert sits in front of her husband, equally expressionless, in a pinstriped crinoline dress. Le Prince is said to have most resembled the Boulibert side of the family, probably in temperament and most certainly in physical features, and it is apparent from later photographs that as Le Prince grew, he possessed his mother's looks, including the broad nose, fleshy lips and her large dark eyes. Either side of their seated mother, the two young brothers, Louis and Albert, stand solemnly in large matching button blouses and severe pageboy haircuts, each child leaning inward slightly. The family is a group forming a triangle of solid respectability. Despite being born in Metz, a town lying to the east of France in the Alsace area, the prince did not consider himself Alsatian as his closest emotional connections were with his relatives in Montpellier. He and his mother both loved the simple life, and the Le Prince family spent its summers in Boulanger, a small hilltop hamlet looking down on Cressy les Centaurs and the beautiful Marne Valley, where they were visited by their Boulibert relations, owners of small farms and vineyards who lived nearby. Louis and Albert's former nurse, the indomitable Angelique, married their father's orderly, after years of bickering, and together kept house for the Le Princes there each summer. Angelique would remain a memorable character. Tall and gaunt and full of angles as a Dutch doll, her voice alone could terrify youngsters. It was deep bass and gruff as a trooper's, but she had a heart of gold. 
and the prince would go on to tell his own children amusing stories about her. Amongst the people who may have introduced new thought to the young Le Prince was a friend of his father's, Louis-Jacques Mondeguer, the artist and inventor whose daguerreotype process was one of the first and most famous methods of photography. The hard-working son of a bureaucrat, Daguerre's artistic impulses steered him towards a series of jobs working with a new phenomenon, the panorama. Panoramas were paintings done on a huge scale, typically of landscapes and military scenes, painted in the round, in circular buildings, in the middle of which stood a raised viewing platform where awestruck audiences would simply look and admire the views which wrapped around them. Their invention was attributed to the Irish artist Robert Barker in the late 18th century, whose view of the Grand Fleet moored at Spithead prompted one journalist to exclaim, The illusion is so strong that the spectators believe themselves to be truly between the harbour and the islands in the open sea. They even say that some ladies have suffered from seasickness. In the 1820s, the gear pioneered a new form of entertainment based on the panorama called the diorama, again involving vast paintings, but this time executed on thin translucent fabric hung flat as opposed to being mounted on a rotunda. These painted scenes were suffused with cascades of light, channeled carefully through windows and skylights and mechanically operated shutters which caused each scene to dim, pulse and glow in subtle and precise ways, bringing them to life for audiences. Daguerre and his partner, Charles-Marie Bouton, had caused a sensation with these before Daguerre began his obsessive quest to fix and make permanent the image of the camera obscura which led to the invention of the daguerreotype. By 1839, Daguerre had moved to the small town of Paris-Saint-Marne, nine miles east of Paris, where he mixed forays into photography and diorama design. Lizzie's memoirs recount that de Geer and Le Prince's father had been friends from college, although her daughter Marie later changed this, stating that they had in fact been neighbours. The Le Princes had a summer house in Voulongy, then a small hamlet close to Brissemane, and it is said that his children, Louis and his elder brother Albert, had visited de Geer's studio there and even been models for his experiments in photography. Le Prince would remember playing in the studio and received his first impressions of the art of photography there, although he would have been no more than ten years old. Either way, it is likely that he would have been familiar at first hand or by reputation with dioramas, specifically the last one de Geer ever made and which he donated to his new hometown in 1842. It was a giant painted optical trick which was housed in the local church which sat opposite the Gears house and studio. This diorama created the illusion of an extra wing to the church stretching out from behind the apse. Natural light falling through a glass opening on high filtered and modulated light so that the candles appeared to flicker on and off. This last diorama, vivid, even disorientating in its realism, would surely have left an impression on a young boy.
Le Prince is said to have received tutoring from his uncle in the town of Bourges, as well as attending the local college there from 1850 to 55. He studied mathematics and the sciences at St. Louis, Paris until 1859, supplementing this with courses in art and modern languages. He then, we are told, continued his studies in science, possibly specialising in chemistry at the University of Leipzig and possibly at Bonn in Germany as well. While his education was described as both scientific and military, it also incorporated the arts, for which Le Prince displayed both passion and aptitude. As a young child, he had sketched the landscapes of Set and Montpellier, and later in Paris had studied painting and taken up portraits in oils and pastels. He had also studied the painting and firing of pottery, and while studying and painting across Europe, had practised the more recent art of photography. The Prince's descendants today own a painting of a coastal scene with two signatures, those of Louis Le Prince and Auguste de la Croix. De la Croix was a painter from Brittany in the north of France, known primarily for marine scenes. He began to suffer from paralysis around 1865 and had to paint with his left hand, and so it is possible that a young Le Prince had become his assistant stroke collaborator. That's speculation, of course, but so much of what we think we know about Le Prince's early life is... The time spent studying, travelling, painting and taking photographs across Europe remains perhaps as much as a period after his disappearance in 1890, his lost years. It was after Le Prince had returned to Paris from his studies and his travels that he met the enigmatic Yorkshireman John Robinson Whitley. Whitley the son of a successful Leeds industrialist whose progressive ideas on education had led him to send his children to study abroad, had also been to university at Leipzig and had been about to leave for Paris himself when he was given a letter of introduction to Le Prince by a mutual acquaintance, one of their professors. In Paris, John Whitley and Le Prince met and got on well, so much so that when it came for Whitley to return home to England, Le Prince accompanied him. It was a beginning of a long friendship between two people who, outwardly, seemed very different from one another. Le Prince must have been somewhat of a gentle giant. At over six foot tall, he was quiet and courtly, and while his enthusiasm for something could burst through his calm exterior, he was often self-contained to the point of reticence. The barrel-chested Whitley, however, was a different kettle of fish. He was full of animal life, irrepressible and not one to hide his light under a bushel. The two, however, had much in common. Well-travelled, with a facility for language, they both had a grounding in the sciences and interest in the arts and in different ways would soon display indefatigable ambition. I began this episode by destroying some of the more sensational theories surrounding Le Prince's disappearance. In case I've disappointed anyone by doing that, let me make it up to you. Let me replace one mystery with another. Ernest Kilburn Scott, in one of his many letters to people trying to increase awareness of Le Prince, mentioned that 
On the day he disappeared, Le Prince was travelling back to Paris with just a black valise, a black case. He's supposed to have been carrying patent documents with him, which is significant, but not the point I'm going to explore today. But before I present my little mystery, I need to qualify it all, which will complicate things slightly. I made a note of the fact that Scott said Le Prince had just a black valise with him, and I've lost that note, and therefore lost the reference to the source material. It is somewhere in my own archive. Because of that, I wasn't going to mention my theory, at least not until a later date when I had, fingers crossed, found the relevant documents. But this episode is taken on the idea of the unreliable narrator. And so I am going to use this information, and until I can find the original source for it, you are going to have to decide whether to trust me or not. You don't get to be passive in this story, I'm afraid. Is this a trick or just a messy reality behind a lot of research. How will you know if this is truth or not? For what it's worth, this is the truth. But I would say that, wouldn't I? Anyway, Scott's letters to people, to press, actors, studios, local dignitaries, they repeated what was essentially the same story over and over. But, understandably... Scott told it in slightly different ways as he sent more and more letters out. The letters were therefore similar rather than all identical, mentioning different aspects of the story, and in one particular letter he happened to mention the detail about the valise. Now we have many instances of the story of Le Prince's disappearance involving all his luggage going from a moving train, and the probable reality is that instead of a struggle and the removal of heavy luggage from a moving train, there was simply the inventor alone, travelling without incident with a black valise full of documents. But if that is the reality, then here is the question. Why is Le Prince, who has travelled from Leeds in the north of England, across the Channel and over to Bourges and then Paris and then Dijon and spent the first half of September in France, travelling back to Paris with only a valise. On the 16th of September 1890, the prince was travelling far too light. Why? That is for us to make sense of, but to do so, we have to follow him closely. And so... When the young Le Prince comes to Leeds, England in 1866, we must meet him there. And in the next episode of The Shadow Traps, we will do so. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Shadow Traps. If you'd like to learn more about the project or perhaps support it, please go to www.patreon.com forward slash The Shadow Traps. Thank you very much for listening.